Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We're in a sermon series on the book of Luke called The King is Here. And uh, the book of Luke, uh, the story of Luke in the New Testament, is all about Jesus being seen as the king bringing a heavenly kingdom to rule on earth. That's the whole narrative of the book of Luke. It's about this king who brings his kingdom to earth. And, And I have a question that I want you to be asking yourself as I give this sermon tonight. Here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. How does somebody become king? How, what's the ceremony like to become a king? What's the process like to become a king? Do you have to be born into it? Do you have a military takeover? How do you become a king? And when there's that moment where you're you know, in some kind of ceremony, what does that ceremony look like? We're gonna talk a little bit about this tonight. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three is where we are going to be. Luke chapter 3. I want to show you a photo. Um, uh, it's of a painting, a famous painting, and it's, I want you to pay attention to it. It's uh, of, a, of a ceremony taking place in Notre Dame in the center of Paris, and it's a coronation of Napoleon as the emperor of France. Um, if you guys know anything about the French Revolution, essentially what happened was a, the, the, the proletariat, if you will, the, the plebeian class rose up against the aristocracy. They take, you know, Marie Antoinette and cut her head off and they do the same to her husband. And they, and, but it moves from persecution of the aristocracy to eating its own. And so the revolutionaries of the French Revolution began to kill one another. They ended up in the guillotine. So um, what happens in this power vacuum is this guy named Napoleon uh, decides that it's time for a new aristocracy, beginning with him. And so in this painting, um, this is a painting of the day when he is crowned emperor of France. So they just got rid of the king of France. They got rid of the emperor of France. And he's like, I think that I should be the king of France. I think I should be the emperor of France. And and, and here's what's fascinating about this painting. I've, I've been drawn to this for years now. Because what's amazing about it is who is crowning Napoleon? He's not putting a crown on the woman that's kneeling before him. She already has a crown on her head. Napoleon is putting the crown on himself. See, there was protocol for this moment. Uh, The traditional Roman Catholic formula, which France is a very Roman Catholic place, was for the monarch receiving the crown to receive it from the church. The church would say, you know, hey, we as the, or the Pope essentially would say, hey, we as the church are conferring upon you this earthly authority and this earthly leadership. But unfortunately uh, for the Pope in this situation, that clashed with Napoleon's ego. Instead, he made the decision to crown himself. The church isn't conferring this crown. The state of France isn't even conferring this crown. I want this image to stay with you. He is crowning himself. Man is giving himself the crown. How does somebody become a king? How does somebody become a king? Look down at your Bibles, verse one of Luke chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, to me, this sounds a little bit like a priestly ceremony, does it not? In this person's reign who reigned here, and in this person's reign who reigned here, and in the year of this high priest, this happened. It sounds like the beginning of this ceremony, and I actually think it is. Verse 3. John went into all the country around the Jordan, pay attention to that word, the Jordan, preaching a baptism of, re of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain made low, the crooked roads shall become straight the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John, this guy John the Baptist, uh, is this priest of a ceremony that has this prophetic kind of role to it. And his role is to move people from the doom and gloom of the prophets to an age of comfort by baptizing them in the Jordan River. That's what's happening. He's preaching this repentance. He's preaching this baptism. And he's saying, I'm going to dunk you. I'm going to baptize you so that every valley in your life will be, made, will, will be filled in and every mountain made low and every crooked road straight so that you can see clearly who God is. So what you need to know is that when the Bible quotes a verse, the entire context of that verse is to be taken into account. The authors expect you to know about Isaiah chapter 40, what was just quoted. And Isaiah 40, if you, if you know the book of Isaiah, is really the crux moment of the entire book. Uh, Isaiah 1 through 40 is a lot of doom and gloom. It doesn't sound very fun. It sounds pretty bad. It's kind of traditional what you think of when you think of Old Testament prophets. But in Isaiah 40, everything changes. It goes from, your you know, infants are going to be dashed upon rocks to this. Next slide. Comfort. Isn't that interesting? Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, so here is the thing. John the Baptist, he knows he's a part of a new covenant coming into play, a heavenly comfort coming to earth. That's why he's preaching Isaiah 40. That's why he's preaching this. He's like, something is shifting. And it's gonna come through people having the hills and valleys of their life that blocked their vision removed so that they can see God through being baptized. That's what's happening. But how you get there, how you get to that truly seeing God, truly understanding who he is, is a little bit tough. Look down at your Bibles. He still is a prophet in the wilderness. Verse seven, John said to the crowds, this is quite a sale. Like, can you imagine this sales pitch if this is what we preached every Sunday? John said to the crowds, coming to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That was like, not nice in that day. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to, your, to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, 
we're Israelites. We can't get out of this. We're good. No matter what happens, we're always going to be a part of Israel. Verse 9. Or, uh, sorry, we have Abraham as our father. Continuing on in verse 8. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Verse 9. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Think of the imagery. In other words, hell is real. That's what John believed. And in order to escape these fires, or in order to, to, to be a part of the people of God, you need to become a part of the children of Abraham. Or, or in language that we'd probably be more familiar with, you need to become a part of the family of God. And notice what he's saying. He's saying, your entrance into the family of God does not come through hereditary lines. Like, if that was the case, probably most of us in this room are probably not Jewish, so we'd all be, you know, sunk. What he's saying is this. In the Old Covenant, the family of God expanded through Israelites having children. That's how the family of God grew. But he's saying in the New Covenant, the family of God comes through repentance. How does the family grow? The family grows by people repenting into this family. That's his message. So you need to get baptized. Verse 10. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone, this is such an amazing answer. I'm not even going to talk much about this, but just you know, ask the Lord what he thinks about this. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors, the scum of the earth of that day, came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Notice to both these professions that were incredibly compromised by sin, he did not ask them to quit their jobs. It's very interesting. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John the Baptist might possibly be the Messiah the Savior. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaim the good news to them. Verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, remember that ruler, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, he wasn't supposed to do that, John wasn't going to approve, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So a little bit of an aside, John's going to prison. But before that happens, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, that's a good phrase, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This ceremony that we just got insight into is the defining moment 
uh, of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Really, this is where the record of his ministry starts. And, and I don't know about you, you probably have a lot of questions when it comes to this passage. There's a lot of questions to be asked about it. But I have one burning question about this passage, and it's this. Why is the king getting baptized? How do you become a king? <laughs> Baptism? This isn't in a temple. It's not in Notre Dame. There's no pomp. I mean, Jesus is the king of not only Israel, but the entire universe. Why is the king getting baptized? Especially when you consider what John's baptism meant. Look back down at your Bibles, verse three. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of what? Repentance. What does Jesus need to repent of? Why is he getting this baptism? I want to show you that there are four reasons why Jesus is getting baptized by John. And the first is this. Jesus was showing full submission to Yahweh's plan for Israel. This is part of what baptism means. Each of these four reasons, they they actually connect to why uh, we get baptized. Jesus was showing full submission to Yahweh's plan for Israel. Um, This is a big deal because um, in Isaiah 40, the utterance that we saw John utter, a voice in the wilderness uh, calling, prepare the ways of the Lord, comfort, comfort my people. Um, Because of that, we see that the baptism of Jesus was a way of Jesus identifying with John and thus with John's message. In other words, the comfort age is here. Jesus is buying in. The comfort age is here. Isaiah 40 is happening. Next slide. Jesus' baptism signals the end of one way of living in relation to Yahweh and the beginning of the transitory stage between the Old Covenant and the Covenant of the Spirit. That's what's happening right here. There's an entire shifting that's taking place from we used to relate to God this way to now we're relating to him in an entirely different way. Secondly, we learn that this act is because of sacrifice. Why does Jesus get baptized? Because he's a sacrifice. When this uh, exact same scene that we just read is described in John's gospel, a different kind of vantage point, here's what John says when Jesus shows up. John is standing in the river and he says, look, the lamb of God, isn't that interesting, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you've been around church before and you're like, we've sung songs to the lamb that was slain or the lamb of God. Like, why a lamb? Well, remember Lambs were sacrificed in the Jewish uh, Levitical or the priestly system to atone for sin or to, in common speak, to get rid of sin. And so, and, and by the way, John the Baptist, here's the crazy thing. John the Baptist comes from the Levitical line. He comes from the line of Aaron. In other words, John is a priest. So Jesus' baptism could be seen as a priestly presentation of the ultimate sacrifice. Here is John the priest Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of all the world. It's unbelievable. Thirdly, Jesus is baptized for righteousness being fulfilled. In Matthew's account, another, this, is, this, this um, uh, story of Jesus' baptism shows up in, in many of the Gospels. In Matthew's account of the baptism, here's what we see. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. I love this. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? By this, Alex's opinion, by this, I think he was saying, 
I need to do this. I need to be baptized for people to become righteous when they come to me. For this to actually, this whole thing to work, I need to step into this. It's a mystery how it works, but it's for righteousness to be able to be fulfilled, that people might become righteousness. Lastly, this ties into the last reason, is that Jesus is an example. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Because he's an example. How you view who Jesus was really, really matters on a theological and practical level. See, there's, there are many people who, I think rightfully so, they see Jesus as a God among men. He's doing the impossible. He's validating his, his uh, power as God as he does the miraculous. And after all, Jesus was God, so it makes a lot of sense. But it kind of gets a little bit sticky when you get to this story because it's a baptism of repentance. Like, if he's God, why is he doing this at all? God doesn't need to repent. But there's another way to look at the life of Jesus. What if Jesus was an example of what a human fully alive in connection to the Father looks like? What if that's how we viewed Jesus? He's still God, but he has, in, in the language of Philippians, he has, set, he has not used his deity to do the things that he did on earth. Instead, he took on the form of a human and lived as a human on earth. See, Jesus, he frequently said things like this. You're gonna do what I do if you believe in me. At one point, Jesus is asked, how are you doing all this miraculous stuff? And if we thought, well, it's because he's God, he would have said, I'm God. I can do miraculous stuff. I kind of made it all. He doesn't say that. When he's asked, how do you cast out demons? How do you have authority in this spiritual world? What does he say? He says, it is by the spirit that I cast out the demonic. So think about this. Jesus didn't, if he, if he cast out the demonic or he did the miraculous because he's God, then him giving us his spirit wouldn't come with the same ability that he had because he did it by being God. But what if he gave us the same tool that he used to cast out the demonic? What if he gave us that tool? The entire purpose of Jesus' life was for humans to become one with God. You're like, really? That sounds kind of new agey. Read John 17. It's the entire aim of his ministry is that humans would become one with God in the same way that he is one with God. It's staggering. What I'm getting at is that if Jesus was an example of a human who is fully connected to the Father by the Holy Spirit, then his baptism makes sense. Jesus sees baptism as the beginning of reconciliation to the Father for every person so that every person can hear those wonderful words, this is my child whom I love and you I'm well pleased. Which is why baptism is like the main thing that Jesus asks his disciples to do. <laughs> like the, his last words, he's like, oh, make sure you baptize all nations. Make sure you do that. But, but maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a question why, because it seems like just kind of a ritual. Like why do we do baptism? I think we should dig down just a little bit on what baptism actually is. So, okay, sometimes we do this. You thought we were already doing like a theology class. Okay, we're gonna go a little bit deeper. Theology cap on, okay? Are you clocked in? Everybody needs to clock in, okay? Um, dipping yourself in water has had a long tradition in Judaism. 
Dipping yourself uh, in what was called a mikvah was a way to become clean according to the Jewish law for multiple things that would make you dirty. Like if you had illness or you, uh, a woman on her period or all kinds of different things. You touched an animal that you shouldn't touch. You were ceremonially unclean. And so you would dip yourself in something like this. Although it's kind of hard to see. Trust me on this. There's some stairs that, that this would have been filled with water. It's called, a, this is a mikvah. And there are stairs that would, you would have gone in to ceremonially cleanse yourself so that you could appear before the presence of God. You could go to the temple. This is in Jerusalem, just like a few hundred yards from the temple. And they think that this mikvah belonged in a very wealthy person's house. Most people did not have access to their own mikvah. This is like having your own hot tub. If you have your own hot tub, that's awesome. Unless you're the person with the hot tub and you're like, yeah, it was awesome for like two months. Um, so, so this is a very wealthy person's house that to, for them to have their own mikvah, their own ability to cleanse themselves. And this is what people would have baptized themselves in the mikvah to be clean. But, but here's the thing. This is what's so interesting to me. John is out in the wilderness. He's not in some rich person's home. He's not even in the temple. He doesn't even have a mikvah. John has a river, the Jordan River. Why? Why is John doing this? You could just go to the temple, or maybe if you're friends with this person, maybe you could get over to their house every now and then. Here's my take. John is leading a heart-based, grassroots, new exodus. He is a new Moses, In the wilderness, remember what was the call of Moses? Let God's people go so that they can worship him in the wilderness. These words connect. It's it's reading the entirety of the Bible. So, so, and, and where is John again? Remember? Oh, it just so happens that John is at the exact same river that the Israelites crossed to get into the promised land. The Israelites had a baptism through the Jordan into their new future. And now there's a new Moses giving a new baptism into a new future. The same river. That is baptism. Baptism is the washing off of the old life. All the Egypt that that stuck to you, the old covenant, and coming into the new land that God has for all of humanity. That's baptism. And this is why you need to be baptized. I'm gonna to try to convince you, if you haven't been baptized, this is why you need to be baptized. Because baptism changes your identity. It changes your identity. Remember the Great Commission? What does Jesus say about baptism? Here's what he says, these are his words. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? <clears throat> in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What is the new promised land for believers when they get baptized? What are we being baptized into? I want to propose that when you get baptized, you are baptized into the Trinity. There's a famous painting, uh, yeah, you can throw it up there, famous painting uh, created by a Russian uh, guy in the 15th century named Andrei Rublev, which is also the name of one of my favorite tennis players, probably named after him. Anyways, this is the picture of the Trinity. 
And um, it's a beautiful icon. You, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit all gathered around this table in equal share with one another. But one of the things that um, people have commented on about this painting for years, and, and even in the purpose of the painting, is that as you view it, as you're the viewer, there's an open spot at the table for you to sit. There's an open spot within the Trinity for you to exist. See, to be baptized into the Father to be baptized into the Son, to be baptized into the Holy Spirit means that you are to be immersed into the very Trinity relationship of God. You get to partake in all of the benefit of that kind of relationship. It's really almost beyond imagination just how, how amazing this is. But the New Testament authors explain how this works and some of the benefits of this. Paul says this to the church in Colossae. He says, having been buried with him in baptism... Isn't that interesting? What is baptism? You're getting buried. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised with him. In other words, baptism is a funeral. It's a death ceremony, but because of Jesus' resurrection, it is a resurrection for you as well. And notice the past tense. You were raised. You're like, when was I raised? See, when you get baptized now, your entire life for your whole future is colored with resurrection power you now have answer, an answer to impossible situations. Like, who is, this, who is this guy standing up here saying he's gonna pray that COVID goes away? How can you do that? Oh, I don't know, he was raised. <laughs> he actually is in relationship with the Trinity. Your whole life from this point forward is a raised life. Water baptism is the prophetic act that you are now dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's not a destination change in the future only, but it is an identity change in the present. Look back down at your Bibles in verse 22. Here's the identity moment. And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Here's the identity. Why is bab baptism is all about identity? Look, guys, you are my son, whom I love, with you, I am well pleased. Before Jesus had done anything, no ministry, no recorded miracles, no amazing sermons, before he had done anything at all, Jesus simply submitted to the will of God and God says, that's my son, who I love. I'm very well pleased in him. When you're baptized, you too get a new declaration over your whole life. This is my child, who I love, and whom I'm well pleased in. And this identity, pay attention, this identity of being, of, and really, do you feel this? This identity of, I'm, I'm, I, I live under, uh, my, the, the skies over my life say, well pleased. Is that your experience? This identity, when you understand it, it comes with responsibility. See, when we talk about identity in our culture today, we think of it very differently, in fact, almost opposite of the way that identity works when you become a Christian, when you get into Christ. In our culture, when you declare your identity, you, you, you declare, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is how I want to appear, or how I want to be perceived. In our culture, when you declare an identity, you are essentially saying this, I have this identity now, and it comes with a list of demands that you must fulfill as a society or as my neighbor or just in general culturally. This is my identity. You have to honor it. 
But the way that identity works in the scriptures is that your identity doesn't come with a list of demands to the community around you. It comes with a list of responsibilities as someone who God is well-pleased in. See, I think that identity statements about oneself that are based on one's gender or sexuality or economic status or physical ability or race are really statements about someone's lack of identity. You so don't have identity, you have to find it in something that's something else. It's this, I don't have anybody who's well-pleased in me, so I need you to approve of me. You have to be well-pleased in me, please. I'm crushed if you won't be. But baptism gives you the identity you've been searching for your whole life. It's an identity not based on your performance or these innate qualities or your sexual preferences. It's an identity based on God's approval that gives you a mission to tell everybody else you can be well-pleased in too. You can be a child too. What a joy. It comes through baptism. And because of this, like, Why baptism? Well, it's the only way to really see the kingdom of God in your life. It's the only way. Let me ask you a hypothetical question, meaning that, or a a rhetorical question, meaning I don't need an answer. I just want you to think about it. Is Eden still Eden if God isn't there? Not a riddle. Is Eden still Eden if God isn't there? I want you to think about this as I continue. Mark Sayers, in his book, The Disappearing Church, he says this. He says, the project of the West is to move beyond Christianity while feasting on its fruit. It's the kingdom without the king. Thus, it constantly offers us options and off-ramps in which we seemingly can have what we enjoy about faith, but without the sacrifices and commitments. Eden without God. Our culture is after a Christ-less kind of Christianity. It's Christ who's offensive. All this about a winnowing fork and the ax being laid at the root. All this about death and dying to oneself. It's offensive. Instead, what our culture tries to get is a world of repaired relationships multi-religion banquets together and renewed souls through the methods of wellness with no reference to Christ himself. And the message of John is just simply, sorry, that's not possible. Look down at your Bibles, verse seven. John said to the crowds, coming to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The equal and the diverse and the beautiful and kind and encouraging society that our culture longs for must realize two things. Firstly, the the desires of our culture for a diverse and a beautiful and a kind and an encouraging uh, universe actually come from the Christian vision of kingdom. They're not random. It's not like you're born and you're like, I just really love diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't know. I just was born into it. No, 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 these are, these are, this is the Bible stuff. This is kingdom stuff. This is the way that God created his world with diversity, with equity, and with in- inclusion. That's what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus did. You don't get it without him. 
Second thing that you need to realize is that you cannot remove the king and expect there to still be a kingdom. Baptism, this is the message of baptism. It's the death chamber. There's a death chamber, right? There's a trap door in a death chamber. Anybody want to enter it tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Baptism is the admittance that we can't get the kingdom in us without God killing the hell that's already there. This is the problem with utopianism, which is all over our culture and unfortunately all over the church. Utopianism misunderstands human nature. In fact, it doesn't even believe humans have a nature. You know, uh, Darwin, I'm going to sound like a, like a preacher from 1998. Let me just beat up on Darwin for a second. Uh, <laughs> Darwin, he believed that all of nature is in flux. Therefore, there's no such thing as a fixed nature. It's like, what is a dog? What's the nature of dog? Darwin would say there's no such thing as a nature of dog. It's just a being that's in flux, shaped by its environment. And so what has happened is that our culture has come to believe that there's no such thing as human nature. There, is just, there are just cultural forms and cultural systems around humans that have squeezed them into specific shapes, be them just shapes or unjust shapes. This is not what the scriptures say. See, in the language of Paul, all humans are born in Adam. In other words, All humans have a human nature, and sin is a part of it. Humans are not in need of the right ism to finally thrive and get back to Eden. The right combination of communism and socialism or capitalism and feminism or or equity, it's not going to get you back to Eden. All of those isms make the fatal mistake in believing that humans are products of the systems they participate in and not products of Genesis chapter 3. No, 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 humans are products of Genesis chapter three. Humans don't need a system change around them to see the kingdom. Humans need to die to see the kingdom. That is what's so offensive about John. That is what's so offensive about Jesus. And and think of the contrast with Napoleon. We began with Napoleon. Napoleon needed this grand, big ceremony, this incredible moment He needed all the vestments and the bells and the smells to convince France that there really was a divine God underneath. It reminds me of a quote. It's like one of my favorite quotes. Margaret Thatcher. I'm I'm not making very many uh, friends tonight, am I? Uh, (laughs) Margaret Thatcher, she, she said this. She said, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are one, you aren't. Yeah, let that sink in. Jesus doesn't need to convince anybody that he's the king. He doesn't need the grand moment in Notre Dame. He doesn't need the crown conferred upon himself. He doesn't, why? Because he knows he's the king. His kingdom starts with a very different kind of ceremony. It's the humility of baptism. As if to say, you will only see the kingdom if you can die like me. So may we not forget that the central image of our faith is a cross. It's a symbol of death. Baptism reminds you that the only way you will find your life is if you lose it. The only way to resurrection is through the grave. It isn't the crowning of oneself as king or queen. It is death to self, 
that reveals and promotes the royalty that we were intended to be from the very beginning in Eden. Right there. When that happens, Eden is regained. In the words of Paul, and I want to end with this, in Romans he says this, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's why baptism. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.